All right. I'm in my childhood bedroom right now. I'm about to interview my dad and feeling pretty anxious about it. Um, we'll see how it goes. <sighs> All right. Last November, I flew home to North Carolina, where my parents and siblings live. I make a trip back home every few months, and they're pretty routine. My mom, excited to see her kids, will whip up our favorite childhood dishes. And at night, my dad will call us out to the front yard to gather around the fire pit. He'll cut up some fruit, and before we even finish, he'll insist we eat more. But this time was different. My parents couldn't stop watching the news. My mom was glued to her phone, and my dad was on his computer in his office, which is where I interviewed him. Okay. Are you going to be comfortable in this chair? <clears throat> so I know this is a little silly to ask you, but just so we have it, can you introduce yourself? Uh, I am Jamali Khreis. I am the father of Rima. <laughs> uh, we live here in North Carolina. Just because people can't see where we are, can you describe the room that we're in right now? Uh, we are in the office uh, by the desktop. Um, by the kitchen, and uh, it's now 68 degrees inside the house, which is okay. I really wanted to sit down with my dad to talk with him about the thing that's consumed us as a family for the last several months. Most of our relatives live in Gaza, and it's also where my parents grew up. The devastation there and how it's impacting our family at times feels impossible to absorb, and it's brought up all these questions for me. It's made me more curious about what my dad's life in Gaza was like and how he's processing this moment. But sometimes I don't know how to ask these questions. I don't know if they're too much or too little. Each day while I was at home, I tried to find the energy to do this interview. I knew despite how much I wanted to do it, it was going to be mentally exhausting. And I wasn't sure how he'd feel afterwards. Or how I'd feel. I'm Rima Khreis, and you're listening to This is Uncomfortable. There's something very surreal about seeing a place so connected to my family become the subject of global headlines and heated political debates. Every news update feels like a gut punch. Like, there's this hospital my dad worked at in Gaza. I grew up hearing so many stories about it around the dinner table. And overnight, it became the subject of a huge news story. At first, I thought, that's what I wanted to talk with my dad about. I wanted to better understand his relationship to that hospital and how it changed the course of his life, and mine too. And while we did talk about that, our conversation that day in his office lasted four hours. And it brought up a lot more to the surface than I expected. Things that I'm still trying to process. This is the most personal thing I've ever shared on the show, or maybe ever. But it feels impossible to stay quiet when everything around you feels so loud. I was surprised by just how anxious I felt talking with my dad about all of this. I didn't want to push him to make him go to places he didn't volunteer to go. He assured me a million times that he was fine doing this. But it took 10 minutes before I even started the interview, because I kept saying things like this. If, if you do want a break at any point, let me know. If you want a break, if it becomes too much or anything like that. That's okay. He's very patient with me. When I was home in North Carolina, it'd been just a couple months since October 7th, when Hamas fighters staged an unprecedented attack on southern Israel, killing about 1,200 people and taking roughly 240 hostages. In response, for the last four months, Israel has been bombing Gaza with tens of thousands of airstrikes. The Gaza Strip is home to about two million people and is about the size of Philadelphia. As of today, the death toll stands at more than 26,000 people, according to Gazan and UN officials. Most of the dead are children and women, and almost everyone is displaced. And at the beginning of the war, Israel imposed a total siege on Gaza, which has meant little to no electricity, along with fuel, water, and food shortages. United Nations officials have repeatedly described the situation there as a humanitarian crisis, and that nowhere is safe. 
My grandparents, most of my aunts and uncles, dozens of my cousins, are all currently displaced within Gaza. In October, when Israel ordered people in the north to evacuate their homes, my family members left by foot to find shelter, leaving nearly all their things behind. Their homes have since been damaged or destroyed. And with Israel's near-constant bombings, they've moved around several times. Right now, they're all in southern Gaza. My grandparents on my mom's side are sleeping on the floor of a law office, while many of my other relatives have been sheltering in hospitals and in tents. It's a nightmare. I wanted to talk about all of that with my dad, but it felt too heavy to start our conversation there. My dad is retired and someone who spends a lot of time outdoors, usually in his garden. So it was weird to see him mostly in his office reading the news. He can't get himself to watch all the videos, though. Because if I do watch a lot, that will affect my quality of sleep, which is already um, not that great. But yeah, yeah, um, when they mention names of um, places where they they get bombed, uh, I know, I know these places. I, I, I grew up there. If I didn't, um, uh, wasn't there, I know that I have family members or friends who live there. I mean, you know, the whole Gaza Strip is so small. And I feel like you've shared, obviously, stories over the years, but I don't think we've ever sat down like this and actually talked about what it was like growing up in Gaza. Yeah, you know, I, I lived my first 28 years in Gaza, or to be precise, in, in a refugee camp uh, called Magazi. I guess growing up, when did it occur to you that you were a refugee? You know, uh, (laughs) it's funny. Just you have have to know that most people who live right now or during my time in Gaza Strip were refugees. And um, and they were, um, you know, when they forced to leave their homes back in 1948 when Israel was um, created. Um, So they lived in these refugee camps. And it's funny that Everybody identify themselves not like from Magazi or from Gaza. They identify themselves by the city or the town where their parents were expelled from. So as a child, you grow up in this kind of upbringing that that you know that your roots go back um, outside the refugee camp. This was true even for me, and I grew up in the States. Since I was probably four, I learned to associate the word home with the town Majdal. When my dad talks about 1948, he's referring to when more than 750,000 Palestinians, including my grandparents, were expelled from their homes during the creation of Israel. Palestinians often refer to it as the Nakba, Arabic for catastrophe. When my dad was growing up in Gaza, the Strip was under Israeli military occupation. Israeli authorities largely controlled the economy, limiting access to previously lucrative trades like fishing and agriculture. The majority of the population lived in refugee camps. Like, when you think back to your childhood, what are some of your earliest memories growing up in Gaza? Like, if you had to paint me a picture. I'm I'm the youngest of six, and my dad uh, was a taxi driver. uh, So life was was simple, very simple and poor. Um, When you're a kid, you don't know there's occupation. You know that there's a soccer game at the end of the day. And you just go outside and play soccer and you're in, the, um, uh, in the street, basically, with your friends. And we didn't have money to buy a, a soccer ball, but we were creative. So we just get a bunch of clothes and stuff and we make the ball. <laughs> Wait, really? <laughs> it wasn't like a true soccer ball because that was expensive and not easy to find. But it was fun. It was fun. And I... I um, I used to play actually very well, very good. <laughs> I know, you You taught, uh, you were our soccer coach, remember? Yeah, yeah in the States, yeah, I did yeah. coach, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, it was a happy childhood. Once in a while, of course, there's some violence and, and that sticks to your head and, and scary moments here and there. Uh, but as a child, it was all right. Do you remember when you were in high school, if you had conversations with your dad, with my grandfather about your future and, and what he wanted for you? <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you asked that because my dad, um, because of them, because of the uh, 1948 Nakba, he had only like, you know, education till like fifth grade or something like that. So he always, you know, in a, when we sit around the dining table, I said, Jamal, I really wish if you one day would be a doctor. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 
And the next day, you know, because if he had like a hard time with his car, I wish you one day you would be a big mechanic. <laughs> Uh, and the other day, you know, I wish you, you know, not a mechanic and be electrical mechanic. That's a big demand for that. So I guess it depends what kind of day he had that day. <laughs> My dad is the kind of guy who likes to challenge himself. Growing up, I watched as he pushed himself to run long distances despite his bad knee, how he'd take on the most elaborate backyard projects, and how he'd insist on driving my sister and me to the nearby university for evening lectures. Good exposure for us, but also he was curious. I guess what I'm trying to say is that knowing all of this about my dad, it didn't surprise me when he told me that he was ambitious even as a teenager. I just wanted to explore the world and and advance and get as much education as, as I could. I was planning on leaving um, Gaza Strip and, and going somewhere. I got a scholarship from Ukraine. I got a scholarship from East Germany. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Wait, to go to college? To go to college, yeah. Um, but your, your grandpa got sick and he had a stroke. And my, it was too much for my, for, for my mom to take care of him, your grandma. So that was a, a game changer. Because of the Israeli occupation, people who wanted more economic opportunity usually had to leave Gaza to get it. And because my dad was the youngest and his siblings already had families or had left Gaza themselves, he felt an obligation to stay, to take care of my grandfather. What was that like, having to make that decision? It was really, really, really hard. Uh, because you feel, because the family ties is so strong. And when your dad gets sick and needs help, that's the last thing you want to do is just to walk away. It's totally not acceptable back home. And um, at that time, I started to look locally and see what's what, what's available. And in that time, there was no engineering school in Gaza because that was my my goal is to go to engineering school. There was no nothing locally available that that I really was hoping, was planning on and, and doing. But the, um, one thing that was available at that time is something that was totally outside of my radar, which was a nursing school. And it's funny, it was, I didn't have much of desire to go to nursing, to be honest with you. Why not? It just didn't be able to. It, it, it wasn't in my list. It wasn't on my list. My list was something, you know, much higher, higher education than that. Um, but, you know, I heard that Getting accepted was extremely difficult, and the process was not easy. So I said, you know what? I'm going to take up this challenge. I don't know if I will end up doing that, but, you know, I'm going to take that challenge and see. And, you know, they get hundreds and not, not, thousands of applicants, and they accept like seven, eight, nine in the end. And, and your dad was one of the nine. <laughs> Do you remember that moment when you found out? Yeah, yeah, it was was unbelievable. It's like, hmm, maybe nursing is getting so real now. <laughs> maybe this is my future. <laughs> and it's at this point in my dad's life when he starts working and training at a hospital that would become central to our family's story. Right now it's called Ahli Arab Hospital, but it used to be a Baptist hospital. It was the place to go to to get good treatment. I got my nursing education there. It's the oldest hospital in Gaza and the only Christian hospital. When my dad started working there, it was managed by the Southern Baptist Convention. It used to be called Baptist Hospital, which is how my dad still refers to it. But today it's called Al Ahli Arab Hospital, which translates to the People's Hospital. Yeah, the hospital location was the center, it was in the middle of, of Gaza City. Uh, you go through the double huge uh, gate, and there, in the middle, by the administration offices, there was uh, like a, a garden or, or flowers and grass, and you know, a grassy area. I'm sure you love that part. Yeah, yeah, and palm trees. I always imagine this period of my dad's life as the time that unleashed his wonder about the world. Like each morning, he'd walk through a large white archway to enter the hospital. He'd make his way to the emergency room where he'd tend to sick patients, bandaging their wounds, giving injections. And then he'd catch up with colleagues among those flowers and palm trees in the courtyard. He was this 22-year-old guy who suddenly found himself at the heart of a lively, bustling institution, a place filled with fascinating people from all sorts of backgrounds. 
That was an eye-opener. There were lots, lots of Christians who worked there, you know, Palestinians. But uh, we have people like from all over the world, you know. I remember we had a guy from Britain. So, you know, you got to practice your English. And till this day, I think back that, that I was lucky to be among them. So then at what point did things shift for you when you became more passionate about being a nurse? When I felt that I was getting respect mm. and felt that I had a good position, after years of working there, I, I felt like I, I knew everybody in the entire Gaza Strip. Yeah, whatever I drive my car, people will stop me. Oh, you helped me out. Did I dare one bar, you know? I don't think I realized that. Yeah. And like you took care of my dad and this and that. And so that was the most rewarding part of my job. And over the years, as his relationships with the community got stronger, so did his connections at the hospital. He told me about this one coworker. Where I used to go and pick up some supplies to the ER. And the person who was running that place, her name was Rima. And I think she was like a couple of years older than me. And she was the most polite person, the nicest person I've ever seen. Uh, and that's where your na name came from. That's so funny. <laughs> that's so wild. <laughs> yeah, she was um, a, a Christian uh, uh, lady. And she was very helpful. Um, just she was a very nice human being. And I said, uh, when you, you know, my daughter's name will be Rima. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Um, but it just goes to show how connected oh, yeah. we are to oh, this yeah. hospital. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was like a family there. Which makes what happened a few months ago feel that much more devastating. On October 17th, 2023, all the hospital anecdotes my dad had ever told me all the memories he'd shared from the 80s rushed through my head when I saw a news alert pop up on my phone. Do you remember where you were when you saw that news headline? Um, I don't remember exactly where I was, but I was in denial for, for a little bit. It was extremely hard to comprehend and digest and accept the fact that that my place was got bombed. There was a massive explosion at Al-Ahli Hospital. This was about a week into the war, and Israel had launched thousands of airstrikes on Gaza. They'd actually hit the hospital's cancer center a few days before. In the days that followed, there were a lot of conflicting reports on who exactly was responsible for this big explosion. Whether it was another Israeli military strike on the hospital, or a misfired rocket from Hamas. It's difficult to verify without independent investigations on the ground. But what isn't contested is that for the last several months, Israel has damaged or demolished every hospital in Gaza. As of now, according to the World Health Organization, there are no fully functional hospitals left. The exact death toll at Al-Ahli Hospital is unclear but hundreds were killed and injured. When this war, this current war erupted, um, hundreds, if not thousands of people thought that Baptist Hospital should be a safer place. So um, they gathered in this little bit court area, where, you know, where the, the garden is. And I think that's exactly where the bombing happened. Hundreds of people vanished in one, one single bombing. And I don't know how the hospital looks like right now, but I'm sure it's not the same. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember. Um, well, I think I saw the headline and then I was on the phone with Mama. And I remember, she, I think she may have told me in real time as she was reading the headline. And she was like, "That that's where, that's where Baba worked. That's the hospital. And, um, and I remember I just sat there and I just was, like frozen and started crying and yeah. it's just on it, yeah. I mean there's no words I mean it's just it's just tragic very very tragic for all of these hundreds of people get killed in the middle of the hospital it's sad were there people you 
new who still work there? Uh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I haven't been able to get in touch with any anybody. Um, most of the people that I, that I worked with, I think most of them retired before the war. But um, the, um, there are some people there uh, that I'm sure still working there. And I have no idea, have no idea how they are doing. And I know like in the past when there have been wars, we've been obviously worried about our family. But I can imagine you haven't been worried in the past about a hospital. No, no. I mean, uh, um, why would you? <laughs> why would you be uh, worried about, about a hospital? It was jarring to see a hospital that once felt so small, so personal, become the latest centerpiece of a decades-long conflict. Looking at the images of the aftermath of a charred wheelchair of blood splattered across the floors, I realized I wanted to see what the hospital looked like before the war. I found videos of the children's ward, of the bright blue walls with pictures of fish and a chart with the alphabet, C for cat, I for ice cream. I saw doctors and nurses tending to their patients, trying to make them smile. I could see why my dad felt at home there. The hospital no longer felt mythical. My dad doesn't show his emotions easily, but on the day of the bombing, he told me he sat at his desk and cried. Even talking about it in his office that day, I could tell he was getting fatigued. It was more than just a workplace for me. It did have, it did have very tragic effect on you know on me in, the, in that day. Yeah, it. Uh, I am still trying to to digest that, which is going to take years. Have you found it harder to just like get through the days these last several months? Yeah, yeah, very hard. Try to occupy yourself with doing you know little stuff here and there. What? <laughs> Sometimes I do vacuuming. <laughs> you vacuum a lot. <laughs> I vacuum a lot. I just, you know, mindless stuff, you know, or go and run in the neighborhood or stuff like that. Um, just to, you know, to survive, basically. How are you feeling? Yeah. Do you, do you want to take a break soon? Yeah, let's just take one minute or two. Yeah, and then I will come back and... and and finish this. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. everyone. This is Uncomfortable is brought to you by you. We are public media and donations from you, our audience, are an important part of our budget. There's a whole team that works on this show and we put a lot of time and resources into this season, which is coming to an end soon. You can help cover our costs and show your love for the podcast when you make a donation in any amount that works for you. Go to marketplace.org slash give TIU to show us some love. That is marketplace.org slash give TIU. Thank you so much for listening. During our break, I lied on the couch in the living room, staring at the ceiling fan. I didn't really know how I felt. I knew that I was at least relieved that we'd gotten through talking about what happened at the hospital. But I also felt a knot in my stomach about the thing we hadn't talked about yet. I decided I'd bring it up at the very end. My dad checked in with my mom and vacuumed his office. And then he told me he was ready to start again. Um, do you mind just scooting your chair a little bit closer? How are you feeling? I'm okay. We can do this. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Just let me know. Yeah. If it becomes too much. Um, we left off my dad's story when he was in his mid-20s. He was the chief nurse of the ER department at Al-Ahli Hospital in Gaza, it was a good setup. He liked his colleagues, they liked him, he made decent money. But at the same time, my dad felt torn. He couldn't stop thinking about leaving Gaza, how many opportunities waited for him outside this strip of land. Maybe he could become a pharmacist or even a doctor. 
But the reality was that his dad was still sick and paralyzed. He couldn't imagine leaving his parents. Like, I'm so curious, how did um, C.D. Wasiti, grandfather and grandmother, how did they react to you becoming a nurse? Well, they liked the fact that I was staying with them, that I didn't leave them. Um, And even better being, you know, in the health field, you know, so I can help them out. And, you know, they see me every every night and bring some money to, you know, they like that. Oh, so you would financially help them out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, as much as I could, yeah. After a while, my dad stopped plotting a way to leave Gaza. Besides, he'd recently gotten engaged to my mom. My dad began envisioning a life there. He'd keep working at the hospital until he retired, raise his future kids in the same neighborhood where he'd grown up. Life would feel familiar, and perhaps that was okay. Maybe my dad didn't need to venture out. Maybe one day his kids would, and unlike his dad, he'd allow it, even encourage it. But then, one day in 1986, the universe dropped a gift on my dad's lap. He was at the hospital when his managers approached him. They um, they came to me and said, well, for the first time in the history of this Baptist hospital, there's a scholarship. One scholarship, and we chose you to, to, to take it. And that was uh, one month of visiting Baptist Hospital in Washington State of North Carolina. And the, the goal was to go there, uh, explore, learn, take notes, go back home and apply that to improve, you know, the healthcare in your place. So this was just a program that the hospital yeah. ran? Yeah, yeah. It just came from nowhere. They just offered it to you? They just offered it to me. Uh, that was unbelievable. That was really unbelievable experience. I never even heard of North Carolina before. <laughs> you know, as you know, you hear of New York and Miami and Los Angeles or something like that. It was totally different. Uh, Just generally speaking, like, what was your exposure to the U.S. when you were in Gaza? Like, did you have, was there music that you listened to? Michael Jackson. Oh, Michael Jackson? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the movies and, and the music. And What was your favorite song? Do you remember? Walk in the Moon or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I remember <clears throat> I have a friend of mine who um, who was talented, and he used to dance like my. You know, I I used to just enjoy seeing, looking at him. You know, watching him dance. It was um, it was fun. <laughs> so that's why you know when we came to the to North Carolina, I was like oh, this is this is America. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, where am I? Where's Michael Jackson? So then when you were here just for a month, um, what was it like? Um, I was overwhelmed. Um, you know, again, I came from a small, small, small hospital to a huge, a huge hospital that's very well structured and built and advanced. Um, so I was overwhelmed by, by, by that, uh, and not to mention the culture shock. And you barely speak the language. You don't... I thought I did. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I did. I thought I spoke the, the language of Shakespeare, but now I, I, I'm lost. <laughs> you know, you walk into the cafeteria um, and you try to pick something, but you don't know what's called. The only thing I ordered, it was mostly potatoes and mashed potatoes. I, I ended up ordering stuff that I really don't want to, but it was the easiest way to, to get the, to the message through. It was always painful. <laughs> My dad would walk around the hospital with a notepad at all times, jotting down all the new things he was learning. He loved it there. Being around his new colleagues, living this new American life, he couldn't shake this nagging thought. What if I did leave Gaza for good? At night, he started studying for the nursing board so he could get licensed to maybe work in North Carolina one day. He figured, why not at least try? He'd deal with the problem of his parents later. And then a month later, when the program ended, he returned to Gaza, and right away he put his new knowledge to use. In 1987, an uprising against Israeli occupation, also known as the First Intifada, erupted in Gaza. Palestinians launched a huge campaign that involved boycotts and acts of civil disobedience. Some protesters threw rocks and Molotov cocktails at Israeli soldiers, who responded with heavy lethal force. It was the most challenging moment of my dad's career. It was sad to see, you know, 
mostly young people shot in their belly and their heads and <clears throat> and so many people were dead and and so many of them were like disabled from the gunshots wounds uh, and um, we we just overwhelmed with a number of casualties I remember that and we took care of them like in the hallways and yeah it was oh, wow you were giving patient care in the hallways it sounds yeah, like yeah 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 like giving blood and this and that and in the hallways in the on the stretchers yeah do you feel like that time changed you at all? And if so, how? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that was the first time that I witnessed, you know, casualties in, in, that, in that scale. Um, and it was very hard to, to survive that time, that, that period of time. I think, you know, you start to have like nightmares from seeing all of these patients. You, you, you did have nightmares? Uh-huh. Till this day. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think I knew that. Floor. Yeah. Well, you know, growing up as a child in a refugee camp, when you, uh, you know, you, you grow up seeing tanks in the streets and, and shooting at people and curfews and stuff like that. Um, you feel like traumatized. Of course. Yeah, yeah. So some of that scenes like will never leave you. Yeah, you grow up with them, and once in a while they are, you know, they erupt again. Yeah. I don't think I knew that. Yeah. That they like stuck with you after yeah. all these years. No question about it. Yeah, no question about it. That's yeah. there. Why do you think he never really talked about that with us explicitly? No, I mean, I just probably didn't want to get exposed to such kind of harsh um, living conditions. Long after the interview ended, I kept thinking about this moment, how my dad shifted into laughter after casually telling me that he has nightmares till this day. I can tell there's still a part of him that wants to keep those memories at a distance. Or maybe he really doesn't want to burden me with them even as an adult. It can be hard to imagine our parents as younger versions of themselves, let alone experiencing something so haunting, so different from the world you inhabited growing up. It made me wonder what else he's storing away. And not just from us, but from himself, too. This period in my dad's life transformed him in more ways than one. Because in this one small hospital where he was witnessing incredible tragedy, he was also welcoming new life. Can you tell me about the time that uh, Hadil, my older sister, was born? She was born in that hospital. She, she, she was born there. That's right. I just clearly remember that face of the doctor who delivered her, Dr. Habis. He said, Jamal, he, she did fine. You have, you have, you have a nice looking girl. Yeah, I remember that. So it was a very good experience. Good night. Yeah, well, I was going to ask what it was like to be um, in that setting, in the hospital, as a, as a new parent, as opposed to a nurse, know, you know? Yeah, that was a new role, you know, because when I got started, I was single, and then engaged, yeah, and then engaged, and then married, and now we have a child. And um, it's like all unfolding in this unfolding. hospital. And it's at this time in 1988 when my dad got more big news. He'd pass the North Carolina nursing boards. The hospital would give him a visa to work in the U.S. if he wanted to. This was the moment he'd been waiting for. And now that he was a parent himself with a child to protect and provide for, his desire to leave Gaza to advance his education felt that much more urgent. Do you remember those conversations that you had with my grandparents about, um, wanting to come to the U.S.? Like, yeah, what were those, that was, yeah, what was that like? It was extremely, extremely hard. Yeah. I mean, that was unbelievably hard to explain that and to justify that for them. You, you know, you, you feel selfish. Um, you, self, you feel, like, self-centered, neglecting your parents. I mean, it just feels like an impossible situation, right? It's like <laughs> you either stay and, and sacrifice, exactly. you know, your right. your own ambitions and... Right. Right. Um, but I had huge, huge desire to do something in my life from, from early childhood. So that was a conflict. It was a conflict. And, uh, and finally, the opportunity knocked on the door to um, come to the States and do something. So um, that wasn't an uh, easy decision to make. It wasn't at all. 
he and my mom decided to move to the U.S. My dad hugged his parents, packed all his things, and flew to North Carolina with my mom and sister. They moved into a small two-bedroom apartment in Winston-Salem. My dad took out a loan to buy a $3,000 Pontiac, and he worked nights to make more money. Meanwhile, my mom, not even 20 years old, worked on sharpening her English. Watching Sesame Street with my sister helped. As I'm getting older, I'm just in awe of of how you all were able to come to the U.S. with very few things, very few financial resources. A thousand dollars? Yeah, that was I had in my pocket. Really? I don't. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, all of my savings. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, weren't there moments where you were like, "Wait, what did we just do? Was this oh, the yeah. right thing?" Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, no, no, no question about it. Um, I mean, it was rewarding financially and this and that and this and that. But the, 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 the culture shock, the language barrier, uh, traditions that we were not accustomed to, it took time. It took time. A year after they moved to North Carolina, I entered the world. And then several years later, my younger brother, Adam. Meanwhile, my dad did what he came to do. He went back to school and got a master's in nursing and eventually became a nurse anesthetist. Much better hours than a nurse and much better pay. And at home in North Carolina, he created his own little sanctuary, a lush garden with bird feeders that he can watch for hours, and that fire pit he made with his own hands. His favorite thing is when we all sit around it as a family. My dad has now been in the U.S. for longer than he was in Gaza, this year marks 34 years in North Carolina. It's kind of weird that, you know, I have been living in the States and I'm still struggling, struggling with English. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, Baba, your English is great. <laughs> uh, very good. Actually, right now I'm like in the middle. You know, not totally with the culture here and not totally with, with, with harmony with the, with the culture back home. So you're like, you're in the middle. Yeah, you're part of the diaspora. Exactly. Growing up, I felt like that too. You know, the classic child of immigrant experience of feeling tugged in two different directions. It was strange to hear my dad also felt like that. I'd assumed he identified more with being Palestinian. But of course, it makes sense. After spending most of his life here, he also feels very much American. And even so, those feelings that plagued him so long ago still linger for years for years and years and years and years you feel you had that guilt that sense of guilt that never goes away you know even though you know my mom and my dad uh, till, till they passed i stayed in in full contact with them visiting as much as i could uh, helping them out as much as i could did you um i'm curious like did you feel an obligation to send money? I guess, because I, you know, I, I lived with, for so long with a with sense of guilt of leaving, you know. Um, like this helps absolve some of that in a way? I guess, yeah. I guess it, 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 does, it does help. So I guess in a way, it, you can say that it's a selfish way of, of, of dealing with it. I mean, I think that's a very human thing. That makes sense. But I knew that they wanted more than that. You know, they wanted me to have me around them. But I feel like that's also a cost that comes with living in a place like Gaza at that time, right? Like well, that's 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 the reality for, you know. I was fortunate to have that opportunity, but most people didn't. Most people didn't. Since my dad left Gaza, it's become a place of contradictions. In a lot of ways, opportunity expanded. When my parents left, there were just three universities. Since then, nine new colleges and universities opened. My cousins and their children have gone on to become pretty much whatever they want to be. Doctors, dentists, engineers. But when Hamas came into power in 2007, Israel imposed a blockade on Gaza. The blockade, which is backed by Egypt, restricts goods going in and out and has devastated the economy. About two-thirds of the population live in poverty. It's also made it hard for people to enter and leave Gaza. It's why I haven't been back since I was a kid. My parents, though, have managed to return a couple times in the last few years. But it wasn't easy. They had to go through the border crossing with Egypt and pay a lot of money. I mean, that, that trip by itself from Cairo to the, board, to the Rafah border was a nightmare. 
it was like open air prison, hard to get in and out. Do you feel comfortable sharing how much it costs to get into Gaza? Well, you know, the, the flights from here to Cairo for um, myself and, and your mom, but we had to pay another $3,000 just, just to get from Cairo to, 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 to the border, which was so complicated and so expensive and so unsafe. And once he was finally in, he was surprised at what he saw. To be clear, this was before the recent war. It was very, very, very different. There was so many buildings. There was so many uh, changes that, that I wasn't able to recognize. Um, and it, just, it was very densely crowded with so many uh, buildings and uh, apartment complexes. But I'm afraid that most of that are rubbles right now. Yeah, so... That, that's going to be very, very hard to see and see before and after because you're talking about massive, massive scale of destruction. So much of Gaza is gone. About half of its buildings are destroyed or damaged. It's shopping malls, old mosques and churches, its hospitals, all of its universities, and nearly 70% of Gaza's homes have been damaged or destroyed by Israeli airstrikes including our families' homes. When Israel ordered about a million people in northern Gaza to evacuate their homes, most of our family members fled and looked for shelter in southern Gaza. But my cousin Iman stayed in her home. Her husband, an OBGYN, ran a maternity hospital with his brother and stayed to tend to his pregnant and injured patients. This is what I wanted to talk about with my dad, but kept putting off. My cousin's apartment was in the same building as this small hospital, right above it. She and her husband lived there with their seven children. On the night of November 11th, I woke up to a text from my parents. Israel struck the hospital. And all of them died. All of them. Iman um, and her kids and her husband and our brother-in-law and other people who were living in that building, they all died with the, with the, with the bombing of, the, of their small hospital. They were killed. Um, yeah, Iman and her children, her seven children. Right, and they were gorgeous kids. And they were like very successful, nice-looking kids. Um, the oldest was a dentist, and the um, other one is IT, and the next one was uh, a medical student. And the youngest was in middle school that I got to meet her last year. She was unbelievable. She was so sweet, so smart. Mira? Yeah, yeah. She was very smart, very socially intelligent for her age. Basically, she was entertaining us with our parents last year. Um, that's that, that's a trauma that I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever ever recover recover from that. I don't know. Probably not. It's, I mean, we've talked about this a lot, but it's just it's just so it's it's so hard and it's impossible to digest. Just a an entire family. They're gone. They're all gone. They're all gone. And um, we were in touch with them a few hours before that. And I remember she was, she was telling her mom, Mom, I'm scared. And, um, and you know, the, 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 even, the, even to make it even more painful, you know, in the Islamic tradition and teachings, you know, they bury the body right away. They got buried like two weeks later after, after they were able to reach them. So that, that just adds more pain to it. Um, um, very hard, very hard situation. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I feel like it still hits me in waves where sometimes it, it, it weighs on me. And I, yeah, it just, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, 
you 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 mourn and grieve for, for a few days and then and then New York for a minute and then like a week later it's like wait a minute is that is that is that for real yeah is that really you know that what happened you know three weeks ago I know I know I'll just yeah I'll be going about my day and then while I'm driving I'll just like freeze up and think about it and just start you know sobbing and then and then you go about your day and then it hits you again and each time you you think of like more details or like more of the heartache um it's it's just so it's so hard to wrap my head around um and then obviously after they were killed we went to canada for service because that's where Iman's parents live, my uncle and aunt. I don't think I told you this. Um, you know, we were sitting around and people were coming up to the family and hugging them and giving them the condolences. And it was such a, it was so bleak, right? It's, it's, it's bleak for what it is, right? You're sitting around um, honoring the lives of like an entire family just wiped out. And at the same time, I was sitting there and just hearing whispers of other people saying, hey, did you know my cousin and her whole family just got killed the other day? Or, oh, my brother, he got killed two days ago. Even when I was sitting down at one point, I heard someone say, oh, did you hear, you know, I forget how many, but like 10 people from this family got killed. And it was mama's family. I mean, mama's family, they're huge, but it was just a very like surreal and like utterly, utterly depressing. Very much so. Very much so. It's, it will take a long time to 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 heal if if you if you if you if you can heal. Yeah. Like just thinking about all the generational trauma. I know we were talking about this the other night. It's just uh, this is really heavy. Every day I think of my cousin Iman and of her family of her husband Ra'id, her brother-in-law Basil, and their seven children, Samira, Yusuf, Ahmed, Amr, Abdulrahman, Muhammad, and their youngest, 13-year-old Mira. The tragic news has been relentless. As of this recording, 156 members of our extended family have been killed. It feels so surreal to even say that out loud. By this point, we'd been talking for several hours. I could tell my dad wanted to wrap up, but didn't want to disappoint me. I asked him one more question. I wasn't expecting to ask you this, but do you have any questions for me? I don't know. (laughs) I don't have any question that I can think of, but I'm impressed by the way That that the 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 Gaza roots are so evident in you and your love and belonging to that place. Um, I'm 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 so proud of you, Rima. You make me emotional. <laughs> <laughs> There's this painting that hangs in my dad's office. I always found it to be kind of terrifying. It's a painting of Palestinians fleeing their homes in 1948, carrying their belongings with them. They look scared, and the background is ominous. As a kid, I'd think, what an odd thing to hang on your wall. Why would you want to look at that every morning while drinking your coffee? When I sat down with my dad, I went in knowing more or less what I wanted to talk about how this hospital in Gaza transformed his future, how it created abundant opportunity for our family, and what it means that it became a casualty of this war. But as he told me this story, I didn't realize just how hard it would be to stay in the past, how much the present and the future are wrapped up in my dad's telling. 
When you leave a place like Gaza, while there's so much you gain, there's also so much you lose. A loss that's nuanced and travels across time. Like, I feel sadness about what's right in front of me, about the death and destruction of the fate of my sweet cousin Iman and her family, while at the same time feeling a quieter strain of grief. A grief for all that my dad and I never got to experience, of all that was lost when he left behind a place that, for most of our lives, would be difficult, if not impossible, to visit. And so it's rational that my dad would grasp on to the reminders, like that dark painting. Remembering painful things can make us feel more connected to who we are. When I turned off my recorder, I felt lighter. That night, I suggested we all sit around the fire pit. My dad cut up some oranges, and as the wood crackled, we talked and we wept as a family, with Gaza on our mind. We have more new episodes coming your way, including another story about Gaza next week. It's an intimate conversation with a young woman currently there and the impossible choices she's facing. Stay tuned for that. This episode was produced by Alice Wilder and me, Rima Khreis. It was edited by Jasmine Romero. The episode also got additional support from our senior producer, Zoe Saunders, our producer, Hannah Harris-Green, and our intern, Marika Proctor. Sound design and audio engineering is by Drew Jostad. Bridget Bodner is Marketplace's director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. Neil Scarborough is vice president and general manager of Marketplace. And our theme music is by Wonderly. Special thanks this week to Taffy Hall and Bill Sumners, archivists at the Southern Baptist Convention. Also to Kat Chow, Rand Abdel-Fattah, and Nancy Fergali. And a very special thanks to, of course, my dad for being vulnerable and willing to have this uncomfortable conversation. And to my mom, Suzanne Hreis, forever the keeper of our family memories. All right, I'll be back in your feeds next week. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts.